What London Can Be is brought to you by London Community Foundation, an organization dedicated to improving communities across London and Middlesex County. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome and thank you for joining us for our vital conversation on education. Vital conversations are critical to our discussion on communities' most pressing issues featured in our LCF's London Community Foundation's Vital Signs Report. We speak with leaders and advocates such as our panelists today, changemakers and people with lived experience as they share their knowledge, expertise and stories about these issues. Today's conversation is focused on equality or equity in education and what we can do to create an inclusive, barrier-free access to safe, high-quality education. I'd like to introduce now to you our moderator for today's session, Dr. Jerry White. Um, Jerry is a longtime friend of the foundation. He has been um, involved with us for many, many years and offered such integrity to what we do. Jerry is currently Professor Emeritus in Sociology at Western, Director of Aboriginal Policy Research Consortium Internationally, and Emeritus Editor-in-Chief of the International Indigenous Policy Journal. As a board member at the foundation, he chairs the Social Finance Committee, chairs Vital Signs Committee. He is uh, at Losa Peace Award recipient for his truth and reconciliation work. Terry, thank you for what you do for us, and thank you for moderating these um, meetings that are essential to community conversation and stimulate ongoing conversation. So welcome and thank you. Oh, thank you very much, Martha, for your kind words. And uh, it's my honor to be here with <laughs> these wonderful guests. And uh, I wanted to thank all our uh, people that have tuned in to this vital conversation too, taking your your time to learn more from our from our experts. Uh, we really appreciate you, uh, you uh, coming to this session today. Uh, I'd like to start by introducing uh, the panelists, a distinguished lot. First, uh, uh, Matthew Sarita um, uh, is the Equity and Inclusion Education Learning Coordinator for the Thames Valley District School Board. Matthew is a recipient of the Prime Minister's Award for Teaching Excellence, and he's also a recipient of the Atlosa Peace Award for his work towards truth and reconciliation. Matthew is a board member with the Canadian Courage Project and a committee member on the City of London's Diversity, Inclusion and Anti-Oppression Community Advisory Committee. Thank you and uh, welcome today, Matthew. Uh, Michael Sicconi is the CEO and Chief Librarian of the London Public Library. He brings with him uh, over 25 years of public library leadership experience in various roles, and that is in both Canada and the United States. Previously, Michael was the Executive Director for the Center of Equitable Library Access, CELA, a nonprofit funded by all levels of government, and its aim was to provide accessible library materials to persons with print disabilities. And that program is delivered through uh, Canada's public libraries. Welcome, Michael. Um, Dorothy McKay is a primary teacher, grades one and two at Chippewa Public School here in London. 
For the last 20 years, Dorothy has been an elementary, uh, elementary teacher. And as an intermediate level teacher, she always wondered why some of her students weren't reading at the grade level they should be. And they seem to have lacked some beginner reading training. When she had the opportunity to spend time looking into this and was spending time in primary classes, she saw how reading was taught. Dorothy became curious about that process. She's a researcher born and raised, and she embarked on a journey to educate herself on how to teach reading in the most effective way so that she could reach the largest number of students. Her passion now is to spread that information to primary school teachers so that all kids can learn to read uh, in, in the best way possible. A big welcome, Dorothy. My last panelist to introduce is Ted Gorski. Ted became the executive director of Investing in Children following his commitment to being a board member with that charity. Uh, he took that on for a 10-year commitment period. Ted has extensive educational experience spanning approximately 38 years. Ted worked as an elementary teacher, secondary school department head of arts, served as vice principal and principal in four uh, London uh, district uh, Catholic school board schools. He's volunteered as a coach for at-risk students connected to children's aid. And he taught and supervised student teachers at Nipsing University's Schulich School of Education. That was a position he left to assume the leadership of investing in children. So welcome to you, Ted. I wanna thank you all for taking part, uh, taking your valuable time to talk to us today. And if we have time, I'd like to tell the audience that uh, if we have time at the end of our um, panel discussions of the questions that we've prepared, we'll be able to take some of your questions. So please send your questions to the chat room. So I'd like to jump in. Uh, right away. Um, I have a question for all the panelists first. We've seen students really struggle during the COVID period, particularly those who had faced other kinds of difficulties before COVID. And we know that some of the more diverse communities in London and the lower income communities in London have faced very special challenges. So I want to ask the panelists, what is the greatest challenge we face now and going forward. And how are we gonna meet that challenge? I'm gonna to start today uh, with Dorothy, please. Thank you so much for the opportunity to address this very important topic. One of the benefits of public education is its ability to level the playing field in terms of socioeconomic backgrounds and perhaps provide children with opportunities that otherwise might be limited. Emergency and online learning exposed those deficits that in-person school masks in terms of access to technology, reliable internet, quiet workspaces, and being left responsible for the care of younger siblings. In addition, stress was increased for students and their families for their own physical and mental well-being. I believe we are now entering a rebuilding phase as we work to get as many students as we can achieving at grade level. So how do we make this happen? The focus needs to be on teaching students how to read and that will then improve their achievement in all subject areas. For years, our province has been focused on improving math, 
which is a noble cause, of course. But I have said for years to anyone who would listen that math scores are poor because of students' inability to read and comprehend word problems. Many students had a tenuous grip on literacy before the pandemic, and that grip slipped during the pandemic. By not explicitly teaching students how to crack the code that is the English language, 60% of students in North America are not able to proficiently read. For some students, this means erroneously putting them forward for further testing within the special education portfolio, where there are already lengthy wait lists. Academic testing is a couple of thousand dollars and some families will pay out of pocket instead of waiting for a couple of years to be tested through the school system. That makes a two-tier system. Other striving or struggling readers who come from families with the financial means end up paying for after-school tutoring to gain a skill that should have been acquired during the school day. Then learning to read becomes an equity issue. Some children will learn how to read only because their parents can afford tutors. As teachers, we need to give ourselves grace for what we've experienced in the last two years, but we need to move on from past misdirection on how reading should be taught and remember Maya Angelou's words, do your best until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. The cognitive science is quite clear on how the brain learns to read. And as teachers, we need to align our practice with this knowledge and teach reading in a way that will have 95% of our students reading at grade level. When a child is able to make meaning from words on a page, the world has opened up to those children and only then will they achieve their full potential. Thanks, Dorothy. Um, Ted, can I switch to you now? What is the greatest challenge we face now going forward? And how do you think that we can meet that challenge? Um, well, personally, I think there, there are a lot of different challenges. And uh, speaking from the perspective of here at Investing in Children as a nonprofit, I would like to think that we do everything we possibly can in support of the schools. As Dorothy mentioned, so many areas that we are certainly in, in tandem or work in tandem uh, with. Um, one of them certainly is literacy. We run a program called Family Literacy and Math Events, and we see that the schools, we study what the schools and this ministry say are important issues, important foci, and then we go with that. So we look at family literacy and math. We understand the new curriculum as soon as the this, this stuff came down the pipe to us. We have, uh, for example, one of our um, staff is a, a teacher of the um, uh, early learning childhood um, courses over at Fanshawe. So myself being working with uh, teachers colleges and that type of thing, certainly keep in, in the know in terms of what's coming down the pipes. And we try to do everything that we can to support the backbone support for schools. So running those family literacy math events has been really important. Dorothy mentioned as well, um, you know, the socioeconomics and poverty and how people have to pay for things. We're there trying to make sure that they can be included in all kinds of opportunities, whether it's academic, whether it's uh, artistic and music, guitar programs all for free, whatever we can do to make sure that these kids get the same opportunity as somebody who might have the funding and the other supports to be able to do the same work. 
it's about inclusion. It's about opportunity. Um, and I think one thing I have to go back to um, at the very front of it is something I believed as an educator all, all my years. It's so important, the concept of relationship building. I always used to tell all my student teachers, you've got nothing unless you build authentic, genuine relationships with the kids that you're with. It's not about judging. It's not about judging socioeconomics, diversity language or anything. It's actually embracing it and, and listening. And I always tell them, you know, you, you look at the word listen and respell it as silent. Remain silent and listen to the kids. Don't talk, just listen. They have wonderful stories. And uh, I have to tell you that, that that's such a richness and a treasure for kids. So socioeconomics is an issue. We do everything that we can to break that trajectory of, of poverty. We work very hard with nutrition. Kids can't go to school and learn if they're hungry. So we work very closely with the Ontario Student Nutrition Program. We have a program here called Children's Nutrition Network. And we have another program called Summer Snack where we realize that when kids are at home in July and August, they're still being active in camps or trying to be, and they still need food. So this year we went to 14,000 deliveries of snacks for kids, nutritious snacks to keep them going. So nutrition's important, socioeconomics, breaking that trajectory of poverty, giving people a new sense of, of, of good life overall. I mean, that's a terrible statement, but it's, it's an umbrella statement, a good life, uh, meaning a positive life, positive opportunities, positive interactions, positive inclusion. That's what we're trying to do here. And it's a massive undertaking as it is for everybody on, uh, everybody joined in today, but that's what we're committed to. Um, and I agree totally with Dorothy, the pandemic, has just put a backward spin to so many things. Um, my wife is a department head of guidance at a high school in London, says the same thing, the kids are disengaged, they're depressed. The number of serious depression issues is so high, so worrisome. And I think we have a lot of work to do to get everybody back on board, to celebrate in person, to celebrate each other, to be positive. I mean, not to go on, but look at the crime wave that's hitting in London. I was talking to Toronto police on the weekend when I was there and they're aware that people are coming from Toronto here and targeting London as, a, as an issue. So we've got to break that trajectory. We have to take on a more positive, ambitious outlook as a society. That's what we're trying to do. And that's what we're joining with you. Thanks very much, Ted. Um, Michael, could I get your thoughts, please? Uh, sure. Um, just, uh... You know, obviously, I'm coming from a little bit different. I don't have the education background that the other panelists do. I'm coming from uh, the library's perspective. Uh, and as as was mentioned, there are a lot of challenges going forward. Uh, but from the library's perspective, I think we see censorship uh, as a major challenge. Uh, we've always confronted censorship, but none like we've seen in the past year and year and a half. I'm concerned about the growing chorus of voices in Canada that are targeting books by and about members of the LGBTQ plus community and BIPOC communities. Uh, over the summer, groups targeted drag story times at several libraries and at London Public Library, we've received no end of vitriol on social media. Now that has been being turned on our collections. It is a substantial problem in the United States right now with libraries being pressured to pull books from shelves because members of the community, which are predominantly white and fundamental Christian, deeming them deeming the content as inappropriate. Uh, I'm gonna quote uh, PEN America, which is a group that advocates for freedom of expression. 
well, they say, while we think of book bans as the work of individual concerned citizens, our report demonstrates that today's wave of bans represents a coordinated campaign to banish books being waged by sophisticated, ideological, and well-resourced advocacy organizations. Uh, there is no reason to think that these resources won't be used to target schools and libraries in Canada. We have already experienced a few efforts um, to that effect in Ontario. Uh, potentially, this is a terrible blow to members of these communities and takes away from our ability, library's ability to promote critical thinking by introducing different perspectives, voices, and ideas. I think as a community, we need to take these threats very seriously and be prepared for them and support schools and libraries when they face these challenges. Thanks. Uh, thanks very much, Michael. Could we get your views, Matthew, please? Absolutely. Thanks for that, Jerry. Um, before I jump in, I just wanted to say hi to Dorothy, Thames Valley um, employee as well. And then um, my good friend, Ted, who I haven't seen in a couple of years. It's great to see you, Ted. Um, thanks so much for including me in this conversation. Um, we know that COVID has exasperated and shone a light on social inequities that were already present before COVID. Racism, poverty, men's violence against women and girls, none of these issues are new, um, but they all increase in severity during COVID. These past few years, we have seen a steady increase in racism, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, homophobia, and transphobia, as well as the effects of cost of living increases on families. All of this continues to place increasing pressure on the individuals that most experience marginalization in our communities. That being said, I am also motivated by the response of communities across our region to counter these increases in hate and discrimination with a response that is rooted in equity, social justice, and radical accountability. The best example I can think of to describe this path forward is through the example that was set by the youth and adult organizers of the June 6th commemoration of the murder of the Afsal family. Equity work begins when individuals commit to personal self-reflection and action that leads to changes in systems. This is exactly what the Youth Co Coalition Combating Islamophobia accomplished last spring. Their commitment to radical accountability and social justice demonstrated what is possible when individuals work together to challenge the roots of, of oppression, racism, and injustice. So to answer the question of what can we do to meet these challenges, I would say that individually, we all need to commit to this same level of relentless optimism or the belief that things can improve. If individually, we all interrogate the root causes of injustice and hold ourselves as accountable to individual action as we demand of our community leaders, politicians and systems, we will see, see the same positive impact in our communities as what was accomplished by a group of youth dedicated to mourning the loss of their friend and demanding change. Thank you. Thanks very much. You know, during um, COVID, the London Community Foundation uh, set up a COVID response with the Lawson Foundation and Westminster Foundations. And one of the projects that we took uh, was to take student teachers from the Faculty of Education into uh, London social housing, set up big tents, have food, uh, and uh, help these kids uh, uh, catch up. Um, we, were, we were 
hoping that he would be helping them keep up, but it was really catch up. And what we found was that uh, uh, we saw excited parents, we saw excited kids, people who wanted to learn. They, they were just an amazing group, but they faced so many challenges, internet challenges, both parents working challenges, no food for, for lunch challenges. And so we got a firsthand knowledge of what some of the things you folks are all saying. This is a real situation out there. And I, I just wanted to pick up one thing is that the, your comments about censorship, Michael, if people can't see themselves in the books that they are learning to read, they don't belong, they don't feel they belong. And they're set back. They're taken, they're taken uh, off the front lines and they're pushed push back and they can't achieve. So thank you for all those, uh, all those comments. Um, I'd like to go into individual questions right now. Um, Matthew, I'm just gonna reverse the order. You've talked uh, about some of the special challenges around equity and inclusion. And I wanna open that up for a bit deeper dive because it's a passion for the London Community Foundation and it's a passion for uh, the other panelists and myself as well. What can Londoners, uh, parents, community volunteers, um, whomever, what can Londoners do to make real change on equity and inclusion in education? Yeah, thanks for that, Jerry. Like I said earlier, equity is about personal reflection, accountability, and actions that lead to change. We have to remember that systems do not exist on their own. They are created and sustained by people, individuals that either decide to maintain the status quo or to decide to challenge it in service of equity deserving communities. In this way, when I think about the question of what can Londoners do to make real change, I'm again inspired the by the words of Majda Cox and the invitation to radical accountability. Equity work must begin with personal reflection about how we as individuals are potentially upholding systems of oppression without even knowing it. As a cisgender heterosexual man of colonial ancestors, I need to do the work to unpack and challenge how my ways of thinking and being are a product of a society that unjustly continues to center my identity as superior to others. And then I need to commit to disrupting these systems through individual action. The other approach that I wanted to highlight today when thinking about the action and actions that Londoners can take is through a focus on healing centered engagement. I really resist mm -hmm. the urge to focus on deficit based thinking. Healing centered engagement is an approach that utilizes a holistic approach and prioritizes the strengths and skills of equity deserving communities to self actualize collective healing and change. In Thames Valley, we are prioritizing this approach by ensuring that students have opportunities to share their living experience and barriers, as well as the opportunity to participate in social justice initiatives that provide students with the chance to make a positive impact on their school and communities. A great example of this is Thames Valley's Menstrual Equity Initiative. Although I am very proud to say that we were the first board in the province to provide free menstrual products in all female and all gender high school washrooms, uh, the part of the initiative that I am most proud of is the fact that the initiative was student led and directed. Not only does this initiative support students that require access to menstrual products in a discreet and shame free manner, 
but it also provides products to transgender and non-binary students in a way that doesn't require them to out themselves when requesting products. This focus on providing individuals with social justice and civic engagement opportunities to identify and remove systemic barriers that impact their well-being must be a priority for our communities as we move forward. Equity work must involve individual actions, but when these actions are a part of a collective response to injustice, we may see the tremendous opportunity for growth and change that our communities deserve. Thank you. Okay, thanks very much. Um, Michael, our city institutions uh, have a role in pushing forward educational attainment. Yours, the library system, uh, I think it's fair to say is seen as a leader, uh, is seen as a learning and growth center. Um, we saw during the pandemic, you provided, uh, for example, Wi-Fi hotspots for community members in need to use internet for people who couldn't even pay their bills. They had to come in and use your facilities to be able to, to operate. Um, just daily needs. What can Londoners do to support you and your institution in those kinds of projects that you are uh, coming forward with? What plans, I guess, uh, trying to scoop you a little bit, but what plans do you have for the coming years that we can support and we can back? Um, sure. Um, I think uh, you'll forgive me and, and I thank you for um, allowing me to the opportunity to self-advocate. <laughs> um, as an organization that receives most of its funding through the municipality, it's important that the city institutions look upon their library, not just a service that's nice to have, but as critical infrastructure for supporting their efforts, infrastructure that we cannot take for granted. Um, our primary focus has always been literacy, liter excuse me, literacy support. And as such, we are a natural, natural partner with educational institutions. But we are much more. We partner with governments, businesses, and nonprofits and have a bird's eye view of the intricacies of the community. Uh, we are encountering, encountering increasing requests for support from community organizations and from the city. And I'll just give you a few examples. As mentioned uh, earlier, the, we are lending Wi-Fi hotspots in an effort to bridge the digital divide. We also always have and will continue to provide Wi-Fi in the buildings and, and computer access. Uh, we are providing snacks for kids after school as well. Uh, we've partnered with CMHA to have a transitional case manager at our central library five days a week to meet the needs of those experiencing housing insecurity, addiction, and or mental health issues. We have settlement workers at four of our branches to support newcomers to London. Our, excuse me, our facilities, services, and staff are increasingly the only free, welcoming, and trusted community space available in their neighborhoods. Thus, it is imperative that library facilities receive adequate and ongoing investment to remain able to serve the growing need for support. Uh, our spaces and resources need to be maintained and significantly improved so we can continue to be the backbone of our communities. Uh, <coughs> excuse me, and we need Londoners to impart how important libraries are to their neighborhoods. Thank you. Thanks very much. Ted, I want to turn to you now. Um, when I read out your introduction, it's really clear that you've worked at all levels of the educational system, sort of from elementary all the way to the university. Um, in your position now, you're sort of working outside, well, actually probably more properly put in parallel with the formal, formal, formal system. Um, can you talk to the benefits of this community-based learning 
and who benefits the most from it, from that sort of parallel activity that we might engage in in the city? Mm -hmm. um, thank you for the question. Um, that's a tough one. Uh, in, in terms of not just our, our nonprofit, but other ones, you know, there's some others that are paralleling the same work and, you know, as schools do as well. And I think, you know, um, when we talk about certain things, like one thing that we do very well, I think, is look at the gaps of need. What are the gaps of need? And we did talk about the literacy program. So we focus on from kindergarten to grade three to assist with the family literacy events. And I have to tell you, like having been at, you know, quite a few of them, it's amazing when you see the groups of people that come out and the parents come out and we always make sure that we have nutrition there to show them what's proper nutrition. Um, we always guide them with the learning uh, concepts. We, we get hand out free books. You know, we talked about storybooks and that type of thing. We take them through shared reading and, and uh, all of that kind of thing. So we're really trying to support the work that let's say Dorothy would do and, and Matt would do in the schools and, and, and trying to make sure that uh, literacy is seen as being very important. Anything that we can do in terms of that support uh, has come back. Uh, the reports from principals have said, this is great. The parent engagement is great. Um, you know, parents can come without any concerns of barriers of socioeconomics or, or, or anything. And, and we make a point of being all inclusive and, and getting them involved. So I think, you know, when you talk about parallel, we are teaching in our own way. Um, and it's truly in support of the school. So there's no question of that. Um, really, truly everything we do is, is paralleling and supporting. Um, we also, uh, you know, when we, when we come out and teach guitar lessons, you know, people think, well, you can do that in schools. Not all schools offer guitar, they can't because it's not affordable either. But we do, we, we hand out a guitar and say, listen, you can have this guitar. And during COVID we were delivering them and picking them up and cleaning them and doing everything. And here's a guitar and guess what? You get to have it for three months and there's no charge, not a penny. If you break a string, I'd come by and change a string in the winter time and everything in the car during COVID. It was kind of funny to watch, but you know what? The parents don't have to pay $30 for a half hour lesson that they can't afford or to buy a guitar that they can't afford. And music education, is so important and why should people that can't afford it be kept from that that, that makes no sense um i have to tell you a quick story we have a young lady called severia who is a london-based singer and she won the um the uh, ctvs to launch and she's appeared on american idol and so she teaches a course and one kid recently said um why are you teaching us and she turned to him and said because you deserve it like it was amazing. And some of these kids come back for a second run at the course, even the third run, and they're taking the learning to another level. And from that, we've created a songwriting program. So they've written a song called uh, My London, which celebrates London. So it's just a lot of good stuff. And they go back to their schools and they're helping in the music programs, they go back to their places of worship and they're helping there, whatever. So in terms of support, uh, you know, we've worked with over 400 kids so far with the guitar program alone. So I'd like to think that on the most part, those 400 kids wouldn't have had that experience if it wasn't for someone outside the school that, that might be able to help. And with the, with the benevolence and the generosity of, of people in London and area that support us. So that's, that's kind of where we parallel. And, and as I said, in terms of nutrition, uh, we just have 
we, we have that essence of service. We have, we have to come out and Jerry, you mentioned, you know, the importance of, of nutrition and Michael and offering kids nutrition at, at the library. I'm thinking that's exactly what we're trying to do to make sure that they understand there's, there's something other than, you know, fast foods and, and there's another option. Right. And, and again, to say that, uh, um, to, to be able to learn and to study, they, they have to have something in their belly. They have to have good nutritious foods to help them. And all of that is, is kind of our raison d'etre. It's why, why we're here and what we're trying to do. And, and with the, it, it's not to take place of anyone else. It's certainly to support the boards, the school boards, the libraries, everybody we work with. Mm -hmm. It's truly a partnership. And it's one that we're very proud of to be supportive. So I think that's, that's the best, uh, the best thing I could suggest. Yeah, and I think that whole idea that's, that's coming up from all of you about partnerships and knowing people. I remember uh, in our, our COVID response committee work, um, some kids said to me, I just wrote it down so I wouldn't forget, if you don't know who we are, we don't care who you are. Mm -hmm. And it just hit me right there. That, that's absolutely right. Dorothy. Can I turn to you, please? Um, in your work, you've identified a serious problem with literacy, which you began uh, uh, today's talk outlining. Can you speak to the medium and long-term impacts of this problem of literacy? Certainly. Uh, so when students are reading below grade level consistently for years, they have severely limited their abilities to become gainfully employed and instead, uh, instead end up either underemployed or unemployed. The pandemic alone revealed how tech savvy people need to be in order to function in society. And the foundation of that is literacy. Disproportionate numbers of illiterate people are represented in our homeless populations, including youth, as well as those that are incarcerated. In 2018, the United States Congress passed the First Step Act which requires all inmates to be screened for dyslexia as soon as they arrive at the facility. And when I look into that, it just shows the number of um, racialized people who also um, were failed by the school system to teach them how to read and the dire consequences that had for them. As a society, everyone benefits from its members being able to read and comprehend well, and that's beyond a primary level. And when um, a disproportionate number of people end up in, the, um, in our jails, and if they've not been taught to read, I just feel we're crumbling, like it's just causing society to crumble. And that's why I've kind of, I guess I'm certainly not an expert, by, but I am an advocate for, um, changing that, turning the tide, turning the ship around and getting uh, everyone to read uh, because yeah, the impacts um, definitely are felt on a personal level. And then as we just exist as a society, you'll see the crumbling of uh, understanding the um, misinformation, unable to uh, disseminate what's true and what's not true on the internet. And, and I feel that leads into um, Michael's issue with um, the censorship, where uh, we've just not being able to embrace other cultures, other 
ways of life. And we're just in that narrow, narrow focus, which I feel, um, again, the pandemic uh, blew the lid off. And uh, it is just such a hateful way for us to be continuing that, yeah, it just, it, um, it's very frightening on what uh, that could turn into if we don't do something about it now. Thank you so much. And I'd like to thank all the panelists for all the amazing work you've done as individuals and in the institutions and organizations that you're in. Um, it's, it's interesting, one thing popped up for me, London needs people to fill jobs right now. And London citizens are looking for work right now. The mismatch, part of what education is all about is to be able to start working on blending that and getting rid of that mismatch, training people, opening up opportunities, uh, whether that's uh, uh, apprenticeships, whether that's in service, whether it, it doesn't matter what the sections are. It's, um, I wanted to sneak in somewhere that uh, the, the community foundation is in the process of building a, a London data hub right now. Um, and we've been reaching out to different organizations and had some wonderful responses, but fairly soon citizens organizations will be able to just log on and look at trends, trends in education, trends in uh, job hunting, trends in uh, racism, trends in uh, gender equities, and see where our city's going and where we might be pushing uh, people who are in a position to do policy work uh, to pass policy, what we might be pushing for in terms of uh, of making this a, a, an equitable and one more even more wonderful city for everybody uh, to work in. Well, that our time has flown by. We've still got a few minutes left, and I uh, I want to say to Matt. I'm going to turn it over to you and see if uh, you can uh, uh, put some questions to our um, um, to our guests and panelists from our audience. Um, got a question from Leslie for Dorothy, uh, saying, "Dorothy, can you give us some insight into how you teach children to read that is different?" Um, okay, thank you, Leslie. Um, and I'm going to apologize in advance because I could still be here chatting about this <laughs> many, many hours from now, but I'll give it to you in a nutshell. Okay, so um, 30 years ago, uh, there was a researcher who um, decided reading was a psycholinguistic guessing game. His name was Ken Goodman. He was based in Australia. He came up with the idea um, that phonics was not required and children needed to learn how to read by looking at pictures, um, looking at context clues and looking at the um, sort of the word itself, but never sounding it out. So that then allowed the misconception that children learn to read by being read to at their homes. Um, children learn to read by listening to rich literature being read to them. Those are very helpful for children that develops their oral language and that develops their wonder about the world and knowledge is power. I cannot stress enough how it is so important that you make your kids as smart as possible. But unfortunately, that is not how kids learn how to read. Um, so um, researchers came out and uh, 
real had a different approach to this, but unfortunately, their message was buried for about um, 25 years. And I, the pandemic brought us many horrible ex, uh, experiences, but in my opinion, the pandemic blew the lid off um, how reading was taught in schools, mainly because kids were now in their houses and parents were sitting next beside them trying to follow the instructions of the teaching online of how to read. And enough parents were like, what, this, what, how, you're reading? This is, this is not how you would teach reading. Phonics had not been, um, the focus had not been on phonics. So there was, or there is a, um, APR, I think it's, I'm going to say American Public Radio, uh, journalist by the name of Emily Hanford. And I credit her for bringing all of this to light. She has made three um, separate articles, podcasts on, do you like, do you know how reading is being taught in schools, essentially? And so many people got listening to it. Um, also during the pandemic, all these teaching type people were stuck in their homes. They started making um, podcasts. They started doing webinars. The, I, I would, for hours, I would spend reading about, watching these webinars done by people way smarter than me with all this information that they were sharing free. Um, and then, so in addition to approaching it with the wrong method, there has been so many developments oh, with cognitive science and how the brain actually learns how to read. And they've determined that all brains learn how to read the same way. There's not individual methods. So anyways, that brings into this whole body of information called the science of reading, which is just, um, it's not a program, but it's just a methodology that you're like, oh, hang on, I'm actually going to find um, the evidence and the research on how the brain works. And then that's how I'm going to uh, teach kids to read. And um, fingers are crossed that the new language curriculum that comes out in September 2023 will be reflecting uh, something called structured literacy as opposed to balanced literacy uh, because um, it's time for a change. Thank you. And then we've got another question from Paul. Uh, I wonder if anyone on the panel has any feelings about how issues around equity in education connect to outcomes around participation in public life and politics. If anybody has any thoughts on that. I'm sure everybody. So who 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 gets their hand up first? Why don't I, why don't I point to Matthew first? Sure, thank you for that. Um, maybe the example that I'd love to draw everybody's attention to in Thames Valley again, um, is we have what is called a Student Equity and Inclusion Advisory Committee. And so this is made up of secondary school students, two students from each of our secondary schools um, who meet to discuss um, different issues related to equity, whether that be dress codes or our guideline on the non-use of racial slurs and other epithets. They really provide uh, fantastic student leadership related to direct equity issues. Um, but I think the optimistic outcome or the positive outcome that's resulted uh, of this committee that I think connects to Paul's question um, is we've then seen this year students from that equity inclusion advisory committee last year acting as our new student trustees for this year. And so obviously they've seen the impact of their leadership 
Um, they talked about this in uh, when when they're running for student trustee, they talked about their participation on this committee. So I do think it goes to show that uh, when we engage students um, related to equity issues where they have a voice, but also feel empowered to create change in their schools and in their communities, I do think it translates into students feeling like um, they want to get involved in, in later political endeavors, uh, you know, at, at whatever level they might choose. So I think real, real opportunity there for students. Thanks, uh, Matthew. Uh, any of the other panelists want to jump in quickly on that one? Okay, and then we've got a question from Margaret. The term equity to me is giving a student what they need to be successful, but how can this be done in an educational structure that continues to focus primarily on everyone following the same path and doing the same things at the same time in classrooms? Do I have a hand up on this one? I, I can touch on this again. If, oh, Paul, Ted, you wanna go? I'll let you go. <laughs> Um, I would say to that question, Margaret, you're right, the equity does run counter um, to that sort of prescribed approach that you describe in your comment. Um, but I think it, what's really hopeful and optimistic about uh, current work coming out of the Ministry of Education, as well as initiatives that we're focused on here in Thames Valley, uh, is there very much is a prioritization on anti-racist practices, as well as culturally relevant and responsive pedagogy, which really does seek to place the learner at the center of their own learning opportunities. And so not only should students see themselves represented in their own learning, um, but educational learning opportunities need to be responsive to who students are. And so more and more, I'm sure Dorothy can attest to this, more and more we're encouraging educators to make sure that they're providing a range of choices for students uh, when they're engaging in learning opportunities, but also making sure that students lived and living experience um, are able to direct how they engage in their own learning. I was just gonna say, um, Margaret, I teach grade one, and I dream of the day where we're all doing the same thing at the exact same time. <laughs> um, but I know what you mean, yes. Um, so, um, yes, so establishing, let's, let's get everyone reading, let's get everyone, and then feel free to go off into the paths for sure that interest you. But um, yes, um, once they have the skills, they're able to do that, right? And for sure, our society needs people that are able to work in all sectors. And I hope that as a grade one teacher, I am um, just a little, little tiny bit of um, that. But um, since we're in the middle of September, right now it's still, it's still a dream that uh, we'll be able to all move in the same direction at some point soon. Oh, who is that? Oh, I see Richard, sorry. Richard is asking for this podcaster. Um, her name is Emily. Hanford, H-A-N-F-O-R-D. And um, there's even a movie coming out called, um, oh my gosh, The Right to Read. Um, it is coming out in the States. Um, it's amazing, amazing stuff. And oh, I just wanted to touch on that. Um, Richard has mentioned about um, learning styles or learning the auditory, kinesthetic and visual learning. Um, 
And it's interesting about that because uh, the effect size on that type of uh, learning has not shown to be um, valid. So um, years ago, I was doing in September, the kids would show up and I taught intermediate back then and I would do all their auditory, visual, kinesthetic um, learning assessments. And then I found out later that the, the research was not um, there to show it uh, worthy of my time. Thank you very much. Time flies. It's crazy. Um, and I wanted to thank our panelists. Uh, you were uh, um, just on the positive side of brilliant, all of you today. Thank you. Um, I wanted to thank the uh, London Community Foundation staff, um, Vanessa and Matt, for all the extra work that you've been doing to pull this together. Martha, thank you for your um, kind words, introductions, your constant interest and promotion of these kinds of activities. Uh, you, you're an amazing CEO. And I wanted to lastly thank everybody who tuned in today. Uh, we really appreciate uh, the kinds of support the community has. I know a lot of you are in organizations and you take it back and you talk. I did want to say that today's vital conversation was, will be put up on our website, um, lcf.on.ca. So any of your friends, uh, colleagues, others, uh, if you think there's somebody who would uh, be interested in seeing it, we really would like, the, uh, like them to know that it's there in its entirety. Thank you very much and uh, I wish you all the best for the rest of your day, week and month. Thanks for joining us for this episode of What Lenin Can Be. Look for us wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about today's guest, visit us at lcf.on.ca forward slash what Lenin can be. If you like this podcast, tell a friend and follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. You'll find links on our website. Thank you again for listening to us.